Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Thank you very much for being here tonight to our Wednesday night Bible study. We're studying a subject that is not easy to understand. We're studying God. I miss many of Brother Glenn's lectures, and I don't like that. I did get a few of them, but I didn't get enough. I appreciate the opportunity to present to you tonight some thoughts about God. Uh, here's a portion of what I'm going to say, and I've given this the title. But this is not all of it. Paul's God on Mars Hill. That's where I'm going to focus later on, but not right at this point. Dateline Soviet Union, 50 or so years ago. Secretary of Agriculture in Moscow calls the potato man in to give a report on the potatoes on the collective farms. I might quickly say that the collective farms never worked. The trucks didn't run because their motors were bad the, or the diesel was bad and the farmers didn't care because they didn't get anything out of it anyway. The collective farms didn't work. This season that I'm talking about was a terrible season. The potatoes were not growing right and the man in charge of the potatoes throughout the Soviet Union knew he had a problem. So he goes in and Secretary of, of Agriculture says, how are the potatoes doing? He said, sir, you would not believe it. Our potatoes will be piled to the feet of God. Secretary said, comrade, you're an idiot. We know there is no God. And he said, sir, I know that. And that's what I'm trying to tell you. There are no potatoes either. Now that's an old joke. And I heard Ronald Reagan tell it. So it has to be old. But you get the impression from that. And if you don't know anything about the old Soviet Union. You get the impression that they're atheistic. Well they were in government. At least they tried to be. But the Soviet people were not atheists. I traveled there first in 1992. And was surprised to find so many people who were religious. Did their Christianity agree with mine? No. Did their general beliefs agree with mine? No. But they believed in God. They believed God existed. And some of them kept that secret because if they really participated in it, they got no advances in the government. The teenagers there were God-thinking people. And one of the most responsive sermons I ever presented was presented to a, an audience in Kiev, Ukraine. About in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. In those services, we did not extend an invitation. But when I finished and started to get out of the pulpit, the congregation rose and ran to the pulpit and stopped me. And for the next 30 minutes... I had one-on-one -on -one discussions 
with those in the audience about John 1.1. I was thrilled because they were very interested in knowing what that meant and wanted me to clarify this, that, and the other. That's just how it is. College students gathered when I was there in my apartment. Didn't have to. They gathered on Thursday night to study God's Word. I was there in 1995 or 96, I've forgotten. But I opened my apartment to students at the university. And they came of their own accord. Didn't affect their grade. Didn't gain any points anywhere. That's just what they wanted to do. Well, where is God? Who is God? How can we identify with God? And there's no way that I can talk about a football team in Alabama without using bad language. If I say Auburn, that's bad. If I say Alabama, that's bad. But I'll go ahead and say it anyway. I had a group of Auburn students in Jamaica years ago. I never will forget. After a devotional one night, of course then, as Todd says, when I came here, Richard Todd, he said, Brother Andrews, when you were in Jamaica with us, I thought you were as old as dirt. And now I'm the same age you were when you were down there. I said, well, you're as old as dirt. But one of the young ladies came to me after the devotional. She said, Brother Andrews, I need to ask you a question. How do you identify with God? I had never been asked that question took me by great surprise. How do you communicate with God? How, how, how do you relate to God? And I found out that those students had asked many adults questions like that and never got an answer. Their teachers, their preachers, just forgot about it. I understand that. First of all, throughout the world, everywhere, There is an innate knowledge of God. I mean, when a person is born and grows, there are principles about him that are God principles. In Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11, you're probably familiar with it. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. And the King James Version says, also he has set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God has made, that God maketh from the beginning to the end. And I had wondered why in the world the translator said he has set the world in their hearts because the word there for world is not cosmos, world, but it's another word. It is olam, which means eternity, forever. And I dug around and tried to find out the answer to my question. The King James translators were good men. They were, they were scholars. Why in the world did they say the world? And somebody pointed out that it meant everything to them. God has said everything in our heart. I still don't like that because that's the only version I know that translates it like that. Other translations say God has said eternity in their hearts. You know, a dog never wakes up wondering if what's going to happen to him when he dies. You might ask me how I know that. Well, I'm half dog. Besides that, he just doesn't wake up and think, what's going to happen to me when I die? Nor does a cat, nor does a bird. But people do. Why? 
because they have eternity in their hearts. Now I want you to read with me Romans chapter 2 beginning at verse 12 and look at what Paul says about this. We're going over it rapidly. I'm not going to to make any uh, uh, profound statements here, but I want you to see it. Romans 2 verses 12 through 16. You might need to turn your Bibles there because we're going to read that long passage. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Of course, he's talking about Jew Gentile here. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, that is instinctively, Paul says, by nature do the things in the law. And it says the law, by the way, it's talking about the law of Moses. These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. In other words, they don't have the law of Moses. God did not give it to them, but they adopted the principles of the law, innately adopted that. They didn't adopt all the ritual. That's not the point. They adopted the principles of the law, the moral law, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thought accusing or else excusing them, the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. I was asked last night, I was teaching a course in, uh, online in the Philippines. One of the young men said, uh, in the Old Testament, according to the book of Leviticus, God forgave the sins of those people when they offered animal sacrifices. I said, yes, he did. That means he sent them away. He did not pay for the sins with animal sacrifices, but he sent them away, sent the sins away. That's called forgiveness. I said they had to be paid for, but, but you're right. He said, well, what did the Gentiles do? I said, that's a good question. The Bible doesn't deal with that a lot, but God loved the Gentiles. They were not bound by the rituals of the law, but they, when they did those things, they were in the law. God made provisions for them likewise. God is revealed through observations in nature. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork day unto day utters speech. Night unto night shows knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. I don't want to be sentimental. But I, when I was a child, I loved to walk with my dad at night. You could look up and you can see in the sky about a, well, I did have a figure. I don't know if it's 2,200, 22,000, but you can see a limited number of stars, we call them. You can watch the moon as it moves across the sky. The stars as they rotate, apparently so. And wonder at the greatness of God. You just have to say there is a God. And that's what David said. The firmament shows his handiwork. That's what my grandmother used to do when she crocheted. I never have learned that, ladies. I don't know how in the world you take these, those crazy needles and weave that thread like she did. But she did and made big things. Some of you have done that too. Some of you men might have done that, but I've never done it. I can't walk and chew gum at the same time, so I couldn't do that for sure. But here's God weaving 
weaving the things in nature. With no revelation, I see that, and what do I do to please God? I see that a higher power exists. I don't know who he is. Don't have any idea what he does, but I have a feeling that he's involved in storms. He's involved in good weather. He's involved in planting and harvest. He makes little seed shoot out of the ground. I mean, he's a great power. I need to serve him in some way. And I don't know how this came about universally, but men decided that they could figure out ways to serve God. There's a drought. Let's have a, let's have a rain dance. We'll call out to the gods. We'll prance around and do what we need to do in order to get him to drop rain from the sky. A storm is coming. We'll shoot our arrows into that storm. We'll scare it away. We don't want that God down here. We want, we want that God to stay away. We want to please him, but right now he's coming after us. We'll take care of him. And then, would you believe that uh, Esther's husband, Xerxes, lost a battle over in the Aegean Sea? The Greeks sank some of his ships. You know what he did? He ordered his men to take chains and whip the ocean. They took chains and beat the ocean. Because the ocean God had not been nice to him. That's very logical, isn't it? That's very logical. But there's a big thing. There's a thing I just can't get over. The Israelites who knew God after a sense took after the wicked people of Canaan and they would actually, the Israelites would actually take their babies down in the Valley of Hinnom and would let a priest take that little baby and put it in the arms of Molech with a fire raging inside and watch that baby roll down into that fire. Screaming, of course. And then they'd watch the priest take the baby out back, just the bones that were left. God warned, don't let your children pass through the fire. But they did it anyway. And then, on top of all that, how could a Central American man watch his virgin daughter have her heart cut out at the top of the steps of the temple, have her heart cut out, and while it's still beating, bring it down, the priest brings it down and puts it at the top of the stairs and lets the blood, blood run down the stairs. That's for the wickedness of the people. The people are wicked, and that solves their wickedness. Where did such an idea come from? I don't know. I don't understand. It is crazy. But there's plenty of evidence for God. Evidence right in our heart. I mean, it's there. We can't get rid of it. Even Joseph Stalin, who was a proclaimed atheist, he might have been. But Svetlana, his daughter, was not. Svetlana became a Christian of a sort. 
and came to America and said she had always believed in God. Your daddy didn't teach you that, said Lana. Where did you get it? Born in me. Now let's go to Mars Hill. Acts chapter 17, verse 15 beginning. Those people in Athens were concerned about having the best kind of life. They had the second greatest library in the world until that one was destroyed down in Alexandria, Egypt, and then they had the best one. Had a great political system, a great government at the time of Paul. Everything was great. Paul had experienced an earthquake earlier over in Philippi, had gone to Berea, had finally come to Athens, and there he was waiting for his comrades to join him. And while he was there, guess what he did? Well, let's read it. I think it's in this text. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, receiving command for, for, for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed. They departed. Now, while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Why would they be given over to idols? Because they believed there was a higher power. Those professors and philosophers up on Mars Hill, Areopagus, believed there was a higher power. The Stoics and the Stoics and the uh, Epicureans. But Paul saw they were given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Can you imagine his going into the synagogue every Sabbath and reasoning with the officials in the synagogue and the people in the synagogue? Probably spoke publicly there, probably debated publicly they allowed him to do that and with the Gentiles that came in the synagogue. Jewish worship, but after all, it was in Gentile country. So the Gentiles did visit there. But he went there for the purpose of debating these people and then went into the marketplace. The Agora, they called it, a place where people gathered on a regular basis to sell and buy their goods, to see a doctor, to talk to a lawyer to just talk about what they wanted to talk, to proclaim publicly what they believe. If you've been to London, you know there's a place called Hyde Park, H-Y-D-E, Hyde Park. And anyone, of course, there's some limitations, regulation, but anyone can go to Hyde Park and go out to a lectern, a little shelter, and speak on anything he wants to. I stood there and watched them do it. When I visited, I didn't go out there and do it, but I saw them do it. Political things, religious things, whatever. Very interesting thing. That's like the preacher down on the courthouse square. Anybody here remember the preachers on the square in Huntsville? Thank you, thank you. 
We got the old people lifting their hands up, putting mine back down. <laughs> I saw it many times. They preached and then passed the hat, preached and then passed the hat. My daddy would take me over and listen for a while and said, son, we got to get out of here. Don't want you hearing that stuff. Anyway, that's the way it is. So here, here's the marketplace. They were doing that. 18. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. Uh-oh. Paul has a problem. No, Paul has a blessing. He's not worried about the problems. The Stoics and Epicureans were miles apart in some areas, but they were together in a lot of areas. The Stoics believed, you know, they were the stiff people. They just took whatever they had. The Stoics believed that the highest good is to live justly and virtuously. They really believe that. Accept fully the course of nature. Zeno said, let virtue lead the way, then every step will be safe. Pretty good philosophy, isn't it? I like that philosophy. Now you get the rest tangled up with it, you might be in trouble, but... He was right about that. The Epicureans said, we can be happy like the gods if we live free of anxiety. Hear that? We shall be happy like the gods if we live free of anxiety, especially, I'm still quoting, the fear of death and the fear of gods and satisfy basic desires. Now here's the quote. The most terrible evil, death, is nothing to us. Since when we exist, death does not exist. And when death exists, we do not exist. What a philosophy. When I exist, death doesn't exist. When I cease to exist, then death exists. How profound. How profound can you be? That sounds philosophical and it is some said what does this babbler want to say they've got Paul now up on Mars Hill got him up in the uh, part of the uh, in the area where the philosophers meet in the council what does this babbler want to say the word for babbler here in the Greek is spermologos. The word sperm means seed. Logos means word. Where's this word? What does this word seed man want to say? And literally, where does this seed person, where's this a bird that, that gets seed? Where does this seed pecker want to say? They're really making a picture of a bird that goes out and eats various kinds of seed. And then he regurgitates them somewhere else. They had people there in Athens that went around trying to pick out ideas and present them on Areopagus. They said, Paul has picked up a lot of ideas here. And he wants to present them to us. And we're going to let him present them to us. Paul must have been an unusual man. He was... Unlike some of the other apostles, they were ignorant and unlearned men. Paul was a learned man. 
probably went to Jerusalem when he was age 12. We can't prove that, but he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and I'm sure his mom and dad put him there, and sat him down at the feet of the greatest teacher in the law. And they were very, very proud of that. And Paul was a sponge. I should be saying Saul was a sponge. He picked up on every word and every idea. He became a, he was a Pharisee. His parents were Pharisees, but he became a staunch Pharisee at the feet of his great teacher. He was so, so engaged in what was happening that he became radical in his belief. His parents were probably already radical, but he improved on their being radical. We think of him as being a part of Stephen's murder, and he was. But that was not all Paul did. He was responsible for many others who were put to death. He said that. He said, when they were brought to trial, I cast my vote against them. He was in a powerful position. And I'm reluctant to say he was a member of the Sanhedrin because I don't know. But in order to cast your vote against them, you had to be a Sanhedrin member in the normal way. If he might have meant that in some figurative way, I don't know. But whatever. Member of the Sanhedrin, perhaps. Wow. And later on, because of this, because of this, he was able to say, I am the chief of sinners. Why? Because I tried to destroy God's work. Tried to destroy his church. Tried to destroy his kingdom. I thought I was doing right. God had a nice thing going here with Moses' law. The Pharisees and Sadducees were at each other's throat. But we were winning. The Pharisees were winning. And then here comes Jesus who was a good teacher, but he split the Jews even more. We had enough denominations in our Jewish religion. We didn't want that. And I'm going to kill everybody I can that follows him because we're going to put down this movement. And Paul said, because of that, I am the chief of sinners. When I hear a man bragging about being the chief of sinners, and I've heard them many times, I try to tell him that he's not. One man, a murderer, talked to me. I'm the chief of sinners. I've killed a man. Why did you kill him? Because I hated him. Didn't have anything to do with the kingdom. Wasn't trying to destroy God's work. Just trying to destroy one enemy of his. It's not the chief of sinners. There are millions of people that have done that. But Paul was chief of sinners in that he did it and led others to do it. He was in charge of leading others to do it. Wow. All right, what does this seed picker say? What does he want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. I like that because he preached them Jesus and the resurrection. You know, I have a little bit of sympathy for the uh, people of uh, Mars Hill, for those philosophers. How in the world can you prove the resurrection to them? They've never seen a resurrected person. 
probably had never heard of Jesus Christ. If they did, he was just a man that had a wrong philosophy. Did he rise from the dead? No, he didn't rise from the dead. Couldn't have. People don't do that. I mean, I have my PhD. I teach our people here. There's no evidence that anybody ever rose from the dead. Paul, where's the proof? They took him in verse 19, brought him to the Areopagus. We finally got him up there. I've been trying to get him up there the whole time. Saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. We are not only in the Bible Belt at West Huntsville, we are under the buckle of the Bible Belt. It's a joy to be here. But some of us move out of the buckle of the Bible Belt. We move away from it, a long way from it. And we understand what's happening here. Have you ever really been confronted in some distant place about your belief in God? Well, if you've been in a distant place, you probably have. It's not a thing you want to do unless you want to defend it. I was preaching in a meeting one time in another county in North Alabama. And I said, I love to talk with atheists. There were two little ladies sitting right there. They were <laughs> I said, yes, I do too. I love to talk with atheists. Because an atheist cannot defend his position. He cannot, cannot possibly defend his position. He tries and tries and tries. I was on an island years ago, had a young lady with me on our campaign team. She was frightened, frightened in the sense she didn't know what to do. I said, Renee, you walk with me the first afternoon. What if we meet an atheist? I said, there are no atheists here. This is a, quote, Christian island. So we start our rounds. And here comes a guy down the stairs, of outside stairs of an apartment building. He comes down, introduce himself, introduce myself, introduce my, uh, Renee. Hand him a leaflet. I said, we are having a gospel meeting at Victoria Park. We'd love for you to come. He said, I'm an atheist. I'm not going. <clears throat> Bite my tongue. I said, where are you from? He said, Colorado. I said, well, that checks. He said, uh, who are you? And I told him, what kind of education do you have? I said, well, not a very good one, but I have one. I have a degree in math and physics. Bible. He said, you mean you are an intelligent man and you believe in God? I said, all is true. He said, I believe what I can see, hear, taste, touch, and smell. And that is all. I said, sir, do you have a brain? You ever felt it, seen it, smelled it? While I was talking, he walked away. 
I turned to Renee and I said, Renee, I'm sorry. I've been here many times. But that atheist is not native. He belongs to our nation. He would not be an atheist if he lived here. How sad. So they took him and took him up to Areopagus. Oh, I just read that. These are strange things you're talking about for the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in knowing nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So here's Paul's description of God. He stood in the midst of Areopagus. He said, Men of Athens, I perceive that you are very religious. I would like to tell you what that word is in Greek. Religious. But it has 18 letters. And I, I can't pronounce it. The first part of the word, though, is dios. And that means God. So it starts off with God. It means one of two things. If it's a good meaning, it means to revere God or gods, to be pious, religious. And if it's a bad thing, it means to be superstitious. Well, the translators don't know what it means. So the King James translator said, I perceive you're very superstitious. But almost all the translators say very religious. And I tend to agree with that. Not because I'm a scholar, but because it makes sense. I think Paul was commending them for their pursuit of God. And I notice that you're very religious. And he tells why. Before I read that, though, I want to talk about my friend Franklin Camp. Franklin Camp was a great, great gospel preacher. He studied and worked, I think, six hours a day from the Bible. I sat at his feet for quite some time and learned a lot. Brother Camp made a statement one time that I was shocked that he made. I believed it, but I didn't know he did. And here's what he said. He said, life helps you to understand the Bible. That sounded a little bit like God's leading and guiding me somewhere else. But then I thought about it. It's not that way at all. Life gives us, it builds us a mind that lets us see into things that we couldn't ordinarily see. A child growing up keeps getting life and he learns to make decisions on that basis. Mama and daddy counsel him and he learns from others. And as he experiences life, he learns uh, what he ought to do. He much prefers a candy bar when he's seven, only to learn when he's 70 that was not a good way to go. Should have eaten that soup. few years back, I went into a place called Bali, B-A-L-I. You might know that from World War II, Bali, Indonesia. The Indonesians are Muslim. I mean, Muslim, 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 except the island of Bali is Hindu. And I might quickly say there's another place in Indonesia that's Christian in the general sense of the word. And I love that place because we've just established a school there and uh, it's going really well and people are being converted to Christ. That was not so in Sumatra. People were being killed in Sumatra because they were not Muslims. But anyway, Bali is Hindu. They don't like Christians. They don't like Muslims. They're Hindu. Walking around Bali, I noticed 
little trays sitting around by the sidewalk. Some had flowers in it, some had bread, some a little bit of meat or pudding or something like this. And I said to the guy with me, what's going on here? He said, these are offerings to God's. Offerings to God, yes. Offerings to God's. I said, he said, I'll show you something else. See that house over there? It has something, not like a mailbox, but something kind of a post. You see that gift in there? That's the gift of the gods. And somebody came out the door and stood at that mailbox or that post or whatever and made some kind of signs and walked away. So somebody else come in. He stopped and worshiped at that post. He said, those are altars. Altars before every house of the Hindus. That's interesting. I like the fact that people want to worship. I don't agree with that. I don't agree that they were doing what was right. But I agree that they had something in their heart that said, this is what we need to do. This is what we want to do. And here's a better one in Bali. I was sitting with a man named Alex at the hotel where we were staying. We had an outside place to eat. We uh, had eaten breakfast. And there was a place over here that had several shelves on it. I looked at it and I said, what is that? Decorated with all sorts of things. He said, that's an altar. I said, well, I see the beautiful gifts up here, but down here I see some cigarettes and beer. He said, well, you've got to honor and worship the lowest of gods. And then I looked and I said, yes, as this thing gets higher, the gifts get better. He said, that's right. You got it figured out. That is their way of life. And I thought of Paul when he came into Athens. He saw something that he had never seen before. Altars all over the place. And one, I perceive in all things you're very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the object of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. I love that. There was something good about these people. They wanted to worship all gods. And you might say, well, that's polytheistic. I know that. I don't promote polytheism. But they didn't know the one true God. They couldn't say there's one God. They didn't have any idea how to do that. They thought it took many gods to do what they wanted to do. But in case they left one out, they said, here we honor him. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, I declare to you, God, who has made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Neither, he, neither is he worshiped with men's hands. And you medical people in here, the word worship is a therapeutic. Therapeuo. You ever heard of therapeutics? The one you maintain, the one you keep healthy with your hands, that's not what God is. I went into a Hindu temple, by the way, and I sneaked around to the back and I saw gods that had legs missing and arms missing and heads off. They were around in a place, I guess, to be repaired. This is what Paul is saying. You don't have to repair God. 
You don't have to maintain God. You don't have to dust God. You don't have to repaint God. This is the God I'm talking about. He gives life to all breath and all things. He has made from one blood every nation of men that dwell on the earth and has determined their appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. For your own poet has said, we are also his offspring. The deists believe that there is a God. He made everything, wound it up, ran to a far corner of the universe, and now things just kind of unwind. But I want to tell you something surprising about this statement Paul just made. For we too are his offspring. That's the last line of a poem by a man who had been dead for a number of years. I want to read the whole poem to you. Hold on to your seat. From Zeus began, never let us leave his name unloved. With him, with Zeus, are filled all paths we tread and all the marks of men filled to the sea and every creek and bay and all in all things need the help of Zeus for we too are his offspring. Do you think Paul was saying they were the offspring of Zeus? No, he was not, of course. But he was saying your own people have said you're the offspring of God. Zeus was in man form, bird form, beast form. But he said the idea is that God, the God you're worshiping here with the unknown God, you came from him. Therefore, since we're the offspring of God, we ought not to think that divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. You know, I've learned that, no, I'm not going to say it that way. I've learned that people don't reason well. I mean, there are things going on in the world today that are just unreasonable. Hey, how can any human being agree with the things that are happening in Washington, D.C. I don't know. However, they do. These people believed that they were from God, yet didn't know who he was. Truly the times of this ignorance got overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on the which he will judge the world in righteousness of a man who is ordained. He has given assurance of this, to all by raising him from the dead. Whoops. Wrong words. No, no. Right words. I've read analysis of this. Many scholars will say Paul should not have brought that up. He closed the case. No, he put the truth out. When they heard this, the resurrection of the dead, they mocked him. Some of the others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. Paul departed from among them However, some men joined him and believed uh, among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. God is not elusive. 
We just can't comprehend him. He's, he is who he is. He reveals all about himself that we can take. We need to enter his holy place at will. We must do it humbly and boldly. May God bless our efforts to honor him. Let us bow in prayer. Father, thank you for being our Father. <clears throat> thank you for this class. Thank you for the beauties of this church. Bless our elders. Bless our teachers. Bless our students. We pray through Christ. Amen. Don't run in the hall. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.